Just before we get into the text a little bit, as the pastor, I just want to encourage many of you, you kind of heard the announcement today a little bit. I want to invite all of you who, if you have on Easter Sunday, uh, not only to join us for worship, I hope that goes without saying, please do join us for that. But if you don't have plans for Sunday evening, if you are maybe, uh, uh, and I think more and more in our, in our secular day, just families don't celebrate Easter's together. So we want to just invite you as a church, we're going to have a uh, potluck uh, dinner together here in, uh, in our worship hall. So um, I hope so, so many of you will come that we'll have a problem of knowing where to put all, you, all of you. Okay, so um, just come and join us. Bring, bring your favorite Easter dish or uh, no, just bring your favorite dish and come share with us. We'll share a meal together. Uh, there's a little program for little kids uh, too as well. But just want to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior together. And, of course, we have our Good Friday um, service that Friday before. Hope you can join us for that too uh, in the evening uh, as well. So with that being said, uh, uh, let's look to the word. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Verse 6 to 8, and again, I uh, just want to, uh, I forgot to mention, so again, if I didn't get a chance to greet all of you, a warm welcome to all our guests and visitors uh, with us today. We're glad that you can uh, worship Christ with us. And one of the ways that we, we recognize our worship of Christ is to look to his word, and to look to what Christ has said, and that we might live in accordance with Christ's words. So, Titus chapter 2, verse 6 to 8 is where we'll be today. We've been going through the book of Titus, uh, studying uh, just... This theme of that sound doctrine that produces, that leads to good deeds. Uh, conduct that befits the sound doctrine that we hold to. Uh, instead of, I've, I had been reading the whole chapter each time, but this morning I'll just read verse 6 to 8 for us. Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, uh, who was shepherding on the island of Crete, these words. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word once more. We ask that your spirit would teach us. Help us to be a church. Help us to be followers of Christ who live in such a manner that reflects the sound doctrine that we have come to understand in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. That we would be a light to our world. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's title is Sound Doctrine for Younger Men. Sound Doctrine for Younger Men. We've kind of looked at some of the other groups already. Today we arrive at Younger Men. And just for those of you that are kind of wondering where Younger Men is, Younger Men is uh, basically those who are not older men. Older men had 60 and up is kind of the, the number we kind of settled on. And so everybody under 60. Now, we talked a little bit about the the upper limit, what's the lower limit? The lower limit probably in Jewish culture would have been around the age of 12 when uh, men would have entered into, young boys would have been entering into adulthood. So we could say 12 to 60. So there's really sound doctrine for all of you who are 12 to 60 young men. So, but even having said this, younger men, remember, this is in the context, this is characteristics that should, uh, that should um, flow out of sound doctrine. So this is not just, even though it's addressing younger men, hopefully we understand that these qualities are not just only required of young men or only urged of young men. These are qualities that for all of us, whether we are men or women, we, we would manifest these qualities because they flow out of sound doctrine. But just that as Paul speaks these words to young men, he speaks these particularly to us because of our need as young men and just our unique our circumstances as young men. Well, the Bible does have a lot to say about young men. Uh, one of the places that we can find words about young men is in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 20, verses 29, we read this. A wise King Solomon writes, The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Now, hopefully uh, 
you've heard that, uh, that this proverb before, and it basically just conveys that there's a contrast between young men, old men, that the young men, what are they known for? What are they glory in? What are they uh, boast in? What do they depend upon? Well, it's their strength. Uh, can we get that? Makes sense. Uh, all young men are supposed to be strong. We're at the, uh, even, and not just the 20-year-olds or the 30-year-olds, even us 40-year-olds are still strong. At least that's what our 60-year-olds tell me. Uh, they tell me, you're still young. You're still strong. Like, okay, you say so. Why do I feel so tired all the time? But anyways, uh, that's maybe it's something called parenthood. Anyways, the fact is, all of us as young men have a strength to us. We have an ability still. The decay, though it has begun, has not fully taken hold of us yet, right? So there's a, there, what's what we tend to glory in? But the older men, well, as you get older, we all know the, the curse of sin causes a decay in all of us, not only body, but mind as well. And we, and the older men learn to not rely upon their strength as much. And they don't glory in their strength. Their honor, what they are known for is their gray hair. Now, hopefully we don't take that literally, that basically it's because you have gray hair. That's what you actually boast in. It's like, look at my gray hair. But really, this is a symbol. It's a figure of speech for wisdom. Then when, you, when you're an older person and you have gray hair, you've lived long. And you think about it. Think about Ephesians 6.4, right? We tell them children to, to obey your parents. Why you, what, what's the result of that? When you obey your parents, you will live long, right? There's a sense where you, when you've lived long on earth, you've lived long because you've probably followed wisdom. You've probably followed the way of righteousness. So there's that glory is that you depend upon the things of God as an older man. And hopefully that's true for our older men here. The implied corollary of this, uh, this, par- this uh, proverb is this, that while older men are not known for their strength, so young men are generally not known for our wisdom and righteousness, right? Uh, we as, and, and by the way, brothers, hopefully you don't feel like I'm just picking on you. If, it's, if you feel like I'm picking on you, it's this conviction of the spirit because I'm, really, I'm personally convicted by this text because I'm a young man, at least by biblical definitions. But when we think about it, when a man, young man boasts in, in glories in his strength, he depends upon himself. And such a life, when he depends upon self, does not bring glory to whom? To Christ. But it brings glory to ourselves. But what the church needs, what we need as a church, is not younger men who will conduct themselves in such a way that reflects the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And when we do that, it brings glory to Christ. This morning's text exhorts us younger men to live godly lives befitting of sound doctrine of the word of God. The for the glory of Christ, as we'll see. Most of us young men use our strength for our own glory. But godly young men whose strength is sanctified by the Savior can learn to bring glory to Christ. And that's the kind of man we want to be. In Titus, and we see as we look to the text a little bit more, Titus chapter 2, we give a little context, a little review. Chapter 2 is about speaking the things fitting for sound doctrine. These are the things that should mark those who hold to sound doctrine. In verse 2 to 10, we examine the conduct befitting of sound doctrine. What, what should that life look like? We've seen Paul address, tell Titus to teach older men in verse 2, to teach older women in verse 3 to 4, so that they might teach younger women in verses 4 and 5. Now in verse 6 to 8, he finally addresses the younger men. He writes here in verse 6, likewise urge the young men. When we see the word likewise, we can tell that this is in the same context of then of chapter 2, verse 1, that what he is doing, he's speaking the things fitting for sound doctrine. These are qualities that should reflect, be reflected in a young man's life that flow out of our sound doctrine that we hold. This is actually in the, only the second time in this, past, in this chapter that he uses the imperative. He used it in verse 1 when he says, speak the things which are fitting. Now he uses another command. He says, likewise, urge the young men. You can almost think that he's saying to speak these things to the older men, speak these things to the older women so that they can then teach, the, encourage the younger women. But for the younger men, don't just speak it. Urge them in this area. It's a, the urge word urge or encourage or exhort or implore is stronger than speak. You know, we can just speak to someone and then there was 
exhorting someone, urging someone, encouraging one. And I think if we were young men, we could understand this, right? We, we sometimes need someone to urge us on, kind of a, a holy kick in the pants, if you will. Something that we could just like, just, mm, come on, guys. Man up. Be a man of cry for Christ. You know, something like, ooh, you're challenging my manhood. I'm going to be a man of Christ now. You know, sometimes it's just we need that urging. You know, that's why, uh, you know, when we're younger, we like it when people yell at us, you know. You know, preachers yell at us. I'm not going to yell at you guys, brothers. Okay, I just, that's just not the kind of guy, preacher I am. Uh, there are other men here who could yell at you. Okay, your dad, for instance. But hopefully I'm going to, in contrast to how we spoke to the older men and the older women, this morning... It's a little more urging, okay? A little more urging for us today. This is an exhortation, an encouragement that we need to hear, brothers, all right, as young men. All right. At first glance, though, you kind of just look at it. It says, likewise, urge the young men. It seems that Paul has only one quality here that he wants the young men to have, that of being sensible. And technically, that's true. But in, then as he addresses Titus as an example in verses 7 and 8, who himself is a young man, we will be able to infer that what is urged of Titus is also urged of young men, okay? So we'll get there and see how that's, that is the case. As an outline for us today then, what does Paul tell Titus to urge the young men? He urged, he'll, he's encouraged to urge them in five areas, five qualities, godly qualities, Christ-like qualities of younger men that befit the sound doctrine that we hold in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at these five qualities then. Uh, and I pray that it would be encouraging in, in, to you men uh, out there so that we would be men of Christ who glory in Christ. So the first quality that we have, befitting of sound doctrine for younger men, is that of being sensible. It's to be sensible. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Again, this word, we've seen it a couple times in, in the ch- ch- uh, Titus chapter 2. It's a key word repeated over and over for a uh, fourth time here now. Almost one for every group in the church. This word uh, is is translated self-controlled as in the ESV version. But the verb simply means this, to be of sound mind, to be of sound judgment. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude, a state of mind kind of a, a verb, description, action. It's a, but this is, keep in mind, though the, urge, though the young men are urged to be sensible, it's, it's quality that not, it's not just limited to younger men. It's not only what younger men need, it's what all Christians need. In 1 Peter 4, 7, for instance, Peter exhorts the believers uh, all throughout Asia Minor. He says, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment. That's the same verb. Same one, to be sensible, be of sound judgment, be of sound mind and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This verb, to be sensible or be of sound judgment, really describes one who shows self-control in one's thought and judgment. It is a self-control that leads then to behavior appropriate to each situation. And we kind of see that illustrated by uh, verse 7 of chapter of 1 Peter 4, right? Peter telling the, the believers that the end of all things is near, that the circumstances that Christ is coming soon. He's going to come soon. He's going to return, and there will be a judgment, and there's going to be a consummation of the universe. All that is, all the wicked will perish, and all the righteous will be brought before the Lord into, into his presence. And so, in light of those circumstances, the reality of this, there's a certain thinking of a sensibility, a sound judgment that needs to be take place. And that sound judgment, that sober spirit, leads to action. It leads to the end goal of prayer. There's a response. So because the world is coming, there should be a prayer, maybe for others, that others would come to know Christ before it's too late. Maybe it's a prayer for ourselves, that we would be found faithful, that we remain faithful until Christ returns. These are all different ways, things that we could be praying because we, have a, we recognize our, our circumstances and we think about it carefully so as to act appropriately to the situation. Now, perhaps no group in the church needs this quality to be sensible than the younger men, right? And, uh, we need it for sure. Because young men are often inclined to be unrestrained in their conduct. And just think about our youngest men here. I'm sorry to pick on you, junior hires, but, uh, you know, you guys are best examples. Yeah? 
Are you not in unrestrained in your conduct at times? I know I was as a junior higher. I was just bouncing off the wall. I would go do be all, do all sorts of trouble. At least I, I got to some of our junior hires paying attention now. Great. Wonderful to see that. You know, it's like, you know, and this, those of you that work with junior or have junior hires, you know that they are often uncontrolled in their actions. They just act without thinking. They just run around. They goof around. They're probably just you know, playing on video games. You guys playing video games back there? <laughs> Boy, that is the, that, and that thing doesn't just describe junior hires, right? And every level, as we grow older, there is still that tendency to not be sensible, to be unrestrained in our conduct. We, we need self-control in our thoughts. We just do things without thinking of the repercussions. We do things foolishly, even as young, you think I read on the news recently, a young man texting while driving. Killing 13 people. It's doing things without thinking, not being sensible. And we are all guilty of it, young men, in different levels. We need sound mind. We need to have, be self-controlled in our things. And it begins, and it has to begin in our mind. A lot of times when I look at the students, junior highs, high schools, when we, talk, we can focus on their behavior. We say, oh, we got to change it. We got to tell them, stop doing this. Stop, start doing this. But they need a sound mind first. They need a sound mind, a a sensible thinking, so that it would affect the way they live. Because when you ask a young man, well, why'd you get in a fight? Why'd you say those unkind words? Why'd you do any number of a hundred foolish things? And most likely that young man is going to say something like, well, I don't know. I wasn't thinking. It just happened. They get smarter, you know, as they grow a little more intelligent. They say, well, so-and-so made me do it. But we young men, we need to learn to think with sound judgment. We need to be able to say, well, if we weren't thinking, we need to start thinking to be sensible. We need to teach people to reflect upon their, the circumstances before they take actions. And that's hard for young men. I, I find it hard. We just want to act. We always want to do things. My wife, <laughs> I've learned that women are different from men, okay? Not generally, generally, okay? That's true. Well, that's true, absolutely, too. Women are different from men. She, you know, whenever she does anything, boy, there's like three, four, five, six, maybe uh, ten reasons why she's done that thing. Uh, but I'm like, well, it just kind of seems strange to me. I just do what I do. But she just, man, she has like good reasons. And um, if I question it, I'll, I'll find out why uh, she has good reasons. And I'll say, oh, yeah, that's a, better, that's a better way to do it. Let's do it that way. But we men need to think with sober-mindedness. We need to think with self-control in our minds. We're self, when we are sober-minded in our thinking and in our priorities, it will cause us to focus on things that are then pleasing to God. And we'll, Lord willing, be able to act on that which we know is the right. To be sensible, okay? So this really, uh, technically, or this is the only thing asked of young men here, right? It says just you tell the young men, urge the young men to be sensible. The 718 to be talking to, to Titus. And in a sense, that is, it, it, you can almost say that being sensible covers everything else that flows out of here. The, the other two through five could be just out, uh, uh, the uh, results of having a, being sensible. But we're going to take each of them as a separate item. And so we get to points two through four. These are another qualities that characterize a young man who are going to be, uh, who holds a sound doctrine. And secondly, young men, we need to be example of good deeds. Examples of good deeds. Verse 7 says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Uh, since Titus falls into the category of young men, Paul instructing Titus, Paul, Paul instructs Titus to use his own life as an example. He says, show yourself to be an example to the young men. Of good deeds. Here's a young man who is called to teach young men, but Paul tells him, don't just teach them, be an example to them too. Be an example by your life. You need to do the same. And because he's an example, we can infer and understand the implications that what he's an example of in his life is to be expected of younger men as well. And so we take these qualities, second through five, as, qual- as also. These, those qualities that should be expected of young men who hold a sound doctrine, all right? So that's why we take it. So first of all, he's to be an example of good deeds. He is to show himself as an example of good deeds. What are these good deeds? 
are the, you know, when I think of good deeds, what I, you know what I think about? It's funny. It's, it's, it's whatever. Every time I see the word good deeds, I think of a Boy Scout helping an old lady cross the street. That's, I don't know why. Was that like, was that on the cartoons? That's just ingrained in my head. So whenever I think about helping old lady, that's what I think. That's a good deed. But is that really what a good deed is about? You know, what comes to your mind when you think good deeds? You know, many of us probably just generalize it. So just anything that's good, you know, that you do something nice to someone, something kind, something loving. You give someone some candy. Oh, you, you know, help out mow their lawn. Maybe that's a good deed. And, yeah, maybe those are good deeds. But before we just kind of generalize it, let's take a look. Maybe the scriptures would have something to say. And I think the scripture does have something to say. That this is not just Paul's words, be an example of good deeds. These are actually Jesus' words. Look with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And I'll put it up here for us. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount teaches his disciples. And he's telling them that he says, uh, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. That's literally the same word, good deeds. You can translate that good deeds. And then glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what do we learn here about good works or good deeds? Well, first of all, we learn that it's an outflow of letting our light shine. That should be, the good deeds should point to or shine the light of Christ. That's what good deeds should do. All good deeds should shine the light of Christ in some way. What deeds are shown in our lives? Do they shine the light of Christ? Secondly, not only do they, do they shine the light of Christ, but are they good works that bring glory to our Father? Do the deeds that we do, when the people look at them, will they be able to say, that person is a follower of Christ, and therefore I want to glorify their God? You know, do people looking at our lives know that we're Christians? You know, sometimes I, I meet people who know you. Sometimes you meet people who know me. And then they, you tell them, oh, yeah, how do you know them? Oh, I know them through church. And the, you see them like there's a pause that goes on the brain. Sometimes they say it. Sometimes they don't. But you know what they're all thinking? I didn't know that person's a Christian. That person's a Christian? Really? Okay. <laughs> you know, and, I've, and trust me, I've heard it. And maybe you heard it of me. It's a different times. But may our lives ought to somehow reveal to others that we are followers of Christ. That the deeds that we do are not only shining the light of Christ, but it brings glory to God. Are they morally good? Are deeds morally good like Christ is morally good? Are they noble deeds like Christ's noble deeds? Are they praiseworthy deeds like Christ? Are they, do they, and most like Christ, are they contributing to this, leading to the salvation of others? Do they point people to the, to the gospel of Christ? So that God may be glorified. What deeds are showing in our lives? Oh, sadly, the deeds of young men are often frivolous, fleeting, and too often foolish. The deeds that we do are often embodied in, in what we eat. We, we, we're known for what we score on our video games, where we work where we go and we travel. We glory in ourselves, brothers, too often, instead of in Christ. We pursue the things of the world and not as much the things of the word. We are more, and we, and I do mean we, we are more concerned about playing than praying, sleeping than serving, working than worshiping. Instead of we do, we must learn to be like our Savior who became a, who came not to be served, but to serve. We need to learn to be servants in our homes, servants in our community, servants in the church. We must be men who are zealous for good deeds, not like the false teachers in Crete who profess to know God, but by their deeds, essentially they denied Christ. We need to be men who are examples of good deeds as a reflection of the sound doctrine of Christ. The next quality that Titus has shown us, the third quality, is that we are to show ourselves have to have purity in doctrine. We're to show purity in our doctrine. Uh, this uh, word doctrine means teaching. And so it's in his teaching, in his doctrine. 
The word purity that describes his teaching is that which means uncorruptness, that's free from taint. There's a wholeness, an integrity in his teaching. There's no error in it. Recall that this is a quality that's required of elders. Elders are to exhort in sound doctrine, refute those who contradict because they have that sound and wholesome doctrine. But a man who is tainted in his doctrine, who doesn't have sound doctrine, won't be able to exhort anybody in it and won't be able to refute those who contradict it because they're the contradiction themselves. But knowing sound doctrine isn't just for pastors. It isn't just for elders in the church. It's for everyone, including the young men. As a shepherd, Titus especially needed to have purity in doctrine. And as young men, we need to have purity in doctrine. Now, God may not be calling you to be an elder or pastor of a church, but I hope that God will, by his grace in life, allow you to become a shepherd of your own home. And as a shepherd of your home, you will shepherd your wife and shepherd your children, and God gives you. If you don't know sound doctrine, you don't know your Bible, you will not be able to apply those biblical principles and decisions that you'll make as a leader. You'll not be able to guide and, and exhort your family in sound doctrine, refuting things when they contradict. As a parent, I've been already starting to think about what's it going to be like when I send my kids to school, right? Oh, they're going to go five days a week, six to eight hours a day. They're going to learn whatever the world wants to teach them. Some of it good, much of it good probably, but just enough of it that will not be very good, will be evil. And I, as a father, better know my doctrine so that when they, my kids come home and they say, whoa, Dad, I learned this at school. I said, whoa. I better be ready to refute what contradicts, to exhort my children sound doctrine. Hopefully I've already done that beforehand so that when they hear it, they'll say, oh, that's, that's not right. That's not what mom and dad teaches me. But we need to have purity in doctrine, integrity in our doctrine. So just as a practical, I, mean, I think we can just, as a Bible teaching church, we, we already in general kind of uh, strive for this. We, we aim for it to have sound doctrine. We want to hold to the Bible that's true. So I want to give some practical advice, practical biblical wisdom. How do we guard, how do we maintain purity in our doctrine? Okay, because there are ways that our doctrine get corrupted. Maybe we're not going to be outright heretics, but how do we guard it? Well, I think the first practical way to guard purity in our doctrine is to be men of the word, right? We need to be men who are in the word, learning it, holding fast to it, because sound doctrine is found in the word. We don't have a purity in it. We must be men of the word, constantly studying the word so we would know what it teaches. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for doctrine, it's useful for us. Be mental aware. That goes, that's, that's obvious, but it should be stated first. Secondly, though, another real practical thing we can do is to watch out for the warning signs in our lives. Watch out for the warning signs in our lives. What is the warning signs in our lives of basically having, say, corrupt doctrine? Because corrupt doctrine will produce something in our lives. Sound doctrine produces something, right? Sound doctrine produces godliness. But corrupt doctrine produces ungodliness. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, we looked at this before. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, so basically if someone doesn't have sound doctrine, that, that matches up with the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, see, sound doctrine leads to godliness, this is what results. He is conceited, understands nothing, but he has morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. See, what, produce, what corrupt doctrine produces in our lives is things such as conceit, arrogance, uh, contra, uh, controversy and disputes about words, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between us. Ungodliness is the fruit, is the warning signs of a corrupt doctrine. When you find yourself living a life characterized by ungodliness, that is a warning sign to you that your doctrine is not sound. Yes, you may, perhaps you intellectually understand 
sound doctrine, but you have not grasped it in your soul. You have not followed it in your life. Or perhaps there's something completely you misunderstand about that doctrine. You somehow think it's optional, but it's not. Thirdly, and this is a really this is, a little, this is uh, something that kind of something that's always on my uh, on my mind as we uh, go about church, is that we want to to guard and preserve purity and doctrine. We need to hold to traditions to traditions loosely. Hold our traditions loosely, because whenever we elevate in the church, we have traditions. Traditions are not bad. We all have traditions. Things we practice. We things we do. But when we elevate traditions to be equal with doctrine, when we say, well, you have to do it this way, you must do it this way, as if this is, the, this is what God commands us, demands of us, then we make it equal to the word of God. Whenever we make anything work equal to the word of God, we corrupt the word of God. We corrupt sound doctrine. Jesus actually teaches us this in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 7. He says, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. When we teach as doctrine, as God's sound doctrine, the precepts, the traditions of men, we corrupt the doctrine. You know, we do a lot of things that are traditions here. None of them are necessarily wrong. But we need to understand what are traditions here and what is demanded of us of the word of God. And especially in a worship hall context, in worship, in worship ministry context. So many of what we do, and I think this would be a fun project for our, you know, our students, junior high school, just to list everything we do on a Sunday morning that's just traditions of men and everything that's biblical, what God's word commands us to do. That I wear a shirt and tie on Sunday morning when I preach. Is this a tradition of men or is this the word of God? It's the tradition of men, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to stop wearing that shirt and tie. But we must understand that it is a tradition of men. That the fact is that we have the very last element of our service every Sunday morning is what? It's the preaching of the word. We want to leave people with the, that the, the final word is God's word. Is that a, is this the, the having that as a last element? Is that the, pre, is that the word of God or is that the tradition of men? It's a tradition of men. This is a good reason why we might put it at the end, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't suggest next Sunday we put it in the very first. Uh, wouldn't mind. Kind of just get people to show up on time. Uh, maybe I had a bad idea. Or the very fact that we, we take up offering uh, in, a, in a plate, right? We, sometimes we pass around a, a golden plate. Is that tradition of men or command of God? It's tradition of men. We pass it around. Now, we may all have very good reasons for why we do all these things. But we must always remember that they are simply traditions of men. We can continue to do them. That's okay. But must, we must be guarded so that we would never elevate them to where they are to commanded of by God. Hold on to them loosely so we may show purity in doctrine. We'll move on to the fourth quality. The fourth quality is that reflects some young men who hold a sound doctrine, and that's the area of dignity. We must have dignity. NAS translates as dignified, an adjective. But really, this should be a noun here. These are the things, uh, in the Greek it is a noun, because I believe it's an object of the verb earlier, that these are the things we're to show. This is what Titus is show. He's to show himself an example. He's to show himself, he's to show of himself Dignity. This was, but it is from the same word group as translated dignified in verse 2 of older men. But the meaning here of dignity or dignified is seriousness. It's this idea of seriousness, but not just seriousness for serious sake, but seriousness that then would draw the, the respect and, and honor of others, that people respect you because of the, the seriousness in which you live your life. It's, you take your, your life and the, things, the, the, the responsibilities you have in a serious manner. This quality... Is so important that not only elders are required of it, but so are deacons, and deaconess too must be dignified. Of course, the challenge for us younger men is that uh, we don't tend to have a reputation for seriousness. You know, if I, you know, out of 99 out of 100 times, if I say, young men, after church, I want us all to just hang out here. 
you know, you come in here and watch what we do within an hour, you're not going to all find us in prayer and, you know, it's Bible study, deep in Bible study. We're going to be trashing this place. We're going to be playing sports, football, volleyball. We'll most likely be like, uh, you know, just goofing off, telling jokes and, you know, eating food, you know, just not necessarily bad things, but just we will, most often night, we will not take, or we will not have a very seriousness to our demeanor. We tend to be just looking for fun. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't laugh and have fun, but a dignified person is going to know when certain times require certain responsibility, certain behavior, when a job needs to be done. Here you are all at church. I've got a hundred guys, all the men showing up. Well, maybe we should use it for some kind of spiritual endeavor. One is, who is dignified is going to know when to have fun and when to be working. Well, seriousness. How do we develop this dignity, this spiritual seriousness? Well, I'll give you two practical, uh, two practical um, uh, truths that we can help us. First of all, we can pursue dignity by pursuing prayer, by being men of prayer. Pursue, and when we pursue prayer, we're really pursuing the things of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, to basically to pray on behalf of all men, to pray for people, especially those in authority. So that, verse 2, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, that we will live such a life that's characterized, that manifests godliness and dignity. And that's our word. That is a life of prayer for others, a life of communication with God, basically shows and develops godliness and dignity in us. And that's absolutely true, right? If you're spending, when we spend time talking to God about the things of God, it'll make us much more serious men. When we talk to God, we realize that there are many people that need our help. It makes us realize that there's a great work to be done and we can't just continue living our lives just frivolously. When we talk to God, just think about the things you talk to him about. This past week, uh, I, brought, uh, I heard from two individuals that, that they had cancer. Those are the things you bring to God because I can't heal cancer. I can't, do any, I can't give them strength for cancer. When you bring things before the Lord, you bring broken marriages before the Lord. Uh, you bring people that are unsaved before the Lord, that you want to come to Christ. It really creates in us a, a greater sense of seriousness to life. It'll teach us to think as God thinks. But the second thing, that can, a very practical uh, way to develop dignity, <laughs> is to raise some children, okay? Raise some children, okay? And I, I know that you, know, you guys, a lot of you guys are single out there, uh, but I'm speaking, I guess, more to our, to our older men, uh, our older, younger men here that are in our fatherhood years. Is it not true that raising children really gives us a sense of dignity, increases us this sense of seriousness and dignity, right? You really begin to take life more serious. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3.4, elders are then instructed to be, manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Again, as he raises his family, what, uh, manages his household, keeping his children, there's, there's going to be a dignity that surrounds it all, that encompasses it. Raising children will demand it of us. That you, that you can't just kind of wing it as a dad. <laughs> if I just wing it, God help my children, for sure. Then we realize, man, I have to not only, I have to begin to take my children to the Lord every single night in prayer. I have to bring them before God every single night. Because when God's going to bring them to the saving knowledge of Christ, and then that's what I do at night, but then in the day, I need to make sure that my life, as much as I can, is, is talking to them, living before them in Christ. And you all know I'm a sinner. And that God would have mercy and that give me wisdom to show to, and to have the humility to show before our children that, that I too, dear daddy, too sins. And this is what I do when I sin. And I'm sorry when I sin against you. Raising children really causes us to take life and how we live much more seriously. The raising of a family. 
cause us to see our world through God's eyes. You know how much so often as they're raising our kids, they realize, boy, this is probably how God sees me. Here I have everything I need in, in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing. <laughs> I'm running around complaining, God, oh no, I need this, Lord, I need that. Why is this happening to me? Oh, that's, uh, and that's just me. Well, dignity. When we raise children, when we are men of prayer, it really causes us to realize the seriousness of the, the great responsibilities that we have in life. It will increase in us this dignity that life, the life that God gives us deserves. There's one final quality that sound doctrine produces in young men, and that is we need to be men who are sound in speech. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Now, this quality describes the words that come out of a man's mouth. His words. Actually, the word is speech here may either, and some commentators disagree, they, they, some think it means t- Titus's teaching specifically. Others think it means Titus's speech in general. And so there are, and there are good reasons to take both uh, in, the, within the light of the context. But I personally think that uh, when I see that sound teaching uh, here, that's spoken of it would be very close to what's mentioned in verse 7 of purity and doctrine. It seems to me very similar terms that therefore Paul's most likely not saying that again. So he's very like, more likely he's saying sound in speech. He's generalizing not just to uh, Titus's teaching, but he's talking about it to, he's talking about Titus's words in general to whoever he speaks, whether it is his teaching, whether it is just his general converse, day-to-day conversations. His words are to be sound. This word is related to uh, the word sound doctrine. This word sound that we use, sound doctrine, it's, a, it's an adjective, a form, different form of it. The word means something that's healthy. Does it, is it healthy to people? Is it healing to people? Do our words heal, help, or do they hurt? This may be a good contrast. We all know, brothers, our tongues have hurt many people. Um, James tells us in James 3.8 that the tongue is one of the most difficult things to control. No one can tame it. In fact, only God, the implication is only God can. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And this is especially difficult for us young men because we just love, especially when we're together, right? And we are men together. Even the shyest guy is, you know, just speaking whatever comes to his mind. We are often, as young men, slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. We tend to think that we know better than others, and especially our older men in our, in our lives, like our dads. We're more concerned about speaking our mind than listening. And what's more, we all love to joke. We all love to jest, don't we? Nothing wrong with jesting by itself. There's time for laughter. But often our jesting, especially when we're in our teens and our young 20s, it's at the expense of others, isn't it? We love to put down people, put down our, our, our fellow brothers in the Lord. But there's nothing commendable about a guy who can put down others. Nothing. Rather, Scripture warns us against such speech. Two passages from, uh, from Paul to the Ephesians tells us this very much. So, so he, guides us, he gives us guidance for our speech in Ephesians 4.29 and Ephesians 5.4. We read it for you. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so they will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5, 4 says, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. We see here what our speech is not to be characterized by. Our speech is not to be characterized by unwholesome filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting. Our speech instead is to be characterized by edification, grace, and thankfulness. And the latter is the product of sound doctrine in Christ. Such speech, as Paul says, is is a speech that is beyond reproach. The other people who hear our speech will say, we'll have nothing that they can bring a charge against us. They will find no fault in the ways we speak. They will not, even if they make an accusation against us, they cannot be sustained. Because our our speech is sound. Brothers, we live in a world where unwholesome speech is so prevalent. It's almost gloried. We see it in our political world. 
We see it in our business world. We see it on television. But there is never a time when unwholesome speech is appropriate for those of us who hold to the sound doctrine of Christ. Not in the locker room, not when you're with your boys, not when you're upset or angry, not even in private. The word of God is absolute. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let our speech be sound, brothers. And this is hard. Our speech, though, must be sound because then it alone reflects a life that is being transformed by the gospel of Christ, right? When you are cursing left and right, you're using God's name in vain, how does that reflect Christ? When you are putting down others and making them feel dumb or like an idiot so that you would feel good or be able to boast, how is that like Christ? When you are lying, how is that like Christ? It is not. Our speech must be sound, brothers. Not only in our teaching, but in all our speech, in all our aspects. These are the five qualities that should reflect a young man who is, holds to sound doctrine. And Paul, in, in, the la, in the last part of verse 8, concludes with the results of such qualities. When we, when we manifest such qualities in life as a result of our, the sound doctrine that we hold, this is what happens. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. A couple things we can note here, just observe here. The immediate implication that we could draw out from this is that there is an opponent here. Titus uh, may be thinking about the false teachers. Uh, or Paul may be thinking about the false teachers on, on, on Crete. But really, as this word is meant for all of us, this, there is, it is an implication that as those of us who have faith in Christ, there is always an opponent out there in the world. There is opponents to a Christian there's opponents to Christianity. There are opponents to Christ. This past week, we see, we see this exemplified in many different ways. This past week, you, many of you heard the news about our vice president, right? Our vice president, uh, and he, he decided basically to, as a result of an interview, it came to be known that he applied, because he's an evangelical Christian, he, uh, said he never allows himself to dine alone with another woman, Unless it's his wife. This is something they call it the Billy Graham rule or something like that, right? And, that's, and why does he do that? Because uh, hopefully you Christians understand why we do that. Why we might do that. Because he wants to guard himself from the t- eventual potential for temptation of infidelity. It's never, it's maybe the first time is not going to result. But he doesn't want to allow himself to even have the appearance of any infidelity. So he wants his, and he wants his, and so he does that. And if he is going to have, needs to have dinner with someone who's out of the opportunity, he'll bring us along someone else, maybe, another, maybe his wife or, somebody, or some of his fellow staff. But the, the Twitterverse kind of just exploded, right? Well, a little bit exploded. Uh, and people were like, what? This guy's in the dark ages. How is he going to ever, you know, and they just go, you know, people were just going off on him, not understanding why he would do that. Is he like, he can't control himself? He must be like caught up in sin. Oh my goodness. And he's our vice president. He could become our president. All these kind of things. And this just shows you, wow, this is, this reflects basically the secular world just not understanding why Christians do what they do. They just don't get it. But they don't get a lot of things because they deny Christ, Right? That's, that's why. When you deny God's existence, you deny God's creator, it really messes up with your worldview. And a lot of other things don't make sense. And so the natural thing that they do is they mock and ridicule the Christian faith, which they did for President, Vice President Pence. And that's, an ex- that's just an example of what happens, that there is an opponent to the Christian faith. Not to you individually per se. No one's out to me to get you individually, though there may be. But there is always an opponent in our world it's part of the world system led by our, this, the opponent, the great adversary himself, Satan. But what we see, what we understand from this is that there is going to be someone who op- opposes your faith. But though there is an, understand there's an opponent, understand in, in light of this, what Paul says here, we need to remember that the Christian faith is not meant to be lived out as a private religion. The Christian faith is meant to be a public faith. 
that it's a set, we are to live our lives in such a way that others who see our life will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us. Our lives is a testimony. It's a witness. Our lives are a means of God's grace, a God's mercy to the unsaved. It's also a means of God's judgment to the unsaved as well. It will put them to shame when they make charge and accusation against you because of your faith. If you walk in such a manner that befits sound doctrine. And notice too, lastly, I want to observe about this statement, that it's about, they have nothing bad to say about us. And we know this to be true. It only takes one Christian to sin, to fall into sin. And someone will jump on and say, you see, all Christians are hypocrites. The the Christian faith is a joke. It's a scam. Look, this person lived in adultery all his life. This person was a, was a pedophile. This person, oh, he, was, he, was out, he murdered someone, and they call themselves Christians. And we know the reality is that no single one of us can live the Christian life perfectly. We all sin at times. But when we live a life that it's characterized by sin, it gives the opponent opportunity to not, to not only defame you and slander you and call, you right, call us rightly hypocrites, but then they have something bad to say about all of us. About all of us. About the Christians, all Christians in general. And ultimately, they have something bad to say about the gospel of Christ. The world will say whatever they say. And to tell you the truth, we shouldn't get too upset about what they say. It's what we would have said when we were unbelievers. So I know it's what I said as an unbeliever. We don't need to be upset about the world. But instead, let, us be, let it be a motivation for us, part of the motive, to let us live lives befitting of the sound doctrine of Christ so that the opponent will have nothing legitimate to say against Christians and the gospel of Christ. May we live our lives, brothers, especially young men here. Let us live our lives sensibly so that the glory of Christ might be shining in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let us, we ask you that you would help us, particularly us young men here, to be sensible, to think with sound judgment in our lives, to think with your thoughts from your word that would guide us in how we live, how we go about our lives. Oh Lord, produce in us lives that befit sound doctrine. Help us to be dignified. Help us to be examples of good deeds. Help us to be sound in our speech. Lord, many times we confess that we are not like what we ought to be. Help us to grow in this area. Do your work in us as we depend upon you so that Christ might might shine in our deeds and that the world who sees might glorify you. For you are our God, Lord. We thank you for the sound doctrine of Christ. Help us to live in light of it. All of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week. You're dismissed.